0: Hello and welcome to the final episode from the University of Cambridge Centre for Creative Writing. Today, Dr Lucy Shearman will be talking to Adele Geras, who in a long career has turned her hand to most kinds of books, from picture books to books for young adults, romantic novels, and most recently, a crime novel. Lucy and Adele are chatting in a studio in the middle of Cambridge, and they discuss a range of writing topics, from switching agents to embracing crime at the age of 75. They also talk about what it's like to be part of a writing clan.
1: Okay, Adele, um, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um, My first question has got to be about your incredible career as a writer. I did look you up. I think you've written over 100 books, is that right?
2: Well, I have, but some of them, to be fair, are extremely short. I mean, maybe 100 words long, maybe less than 100 words long. Um, Some of them are readers for very young kids or picture books with very few works so over a hundred sounds incredibly impressive but the big books are fewer than that.
1: I think it is incredibly uh, impressive Um, and I just I wondered if you could just talk about the journey into writing because I also saw that you didn't start off thinking perhaps that you were going to be a writer. No
2: no absolutely not I mean I wrote a lot as a child and then i went to a very high powered school where we wrote so much in the, in the academic way you know so many essays and then going to university and writing essays there that really uh, writing was the last thing on my mind and also if you study if you study any kind of literature you get a kind of embarrassment you pass through a phase where you think well really if i can't be charlotte brontë i won't bother uh, and it's only when You get much older that you sort of overcome that. And I had very clear ideas about what I wanted to be, which was a star. I definitely wanted to be a star. And I was doing quite well at it, actually, really until the time I left college. I mean, I was in all the school productions, university productions. I even got my equity card. So that was all going fine. And then I was out of a job on stage and I got married and moved to Manchester where there were no jobs for stars anywhere, really. (laughs) And I discovered that if stars can't find a job, what they do is they teach because it requires the same sort of skills as a stand-up comic, basically. So I taught for a few years. I taught French for a few years and it nearly killed me. Teaching is quite the hardest job in the world, I think. I don't think people realise quite how hard it is because what you're doing really is because I never had any training or anything like that so I just regarded every lesson as a performance I had to go in I had to make them look at me make them listen to me and if I could teach them a few words of French on top of that that was a bonus but it nearly killed me so when I had my first child I left teaching and I was delighted and my my friends in the in the staff room said oh you're going to be so bored what you're going to do no I had a lovely time absolutely lovely and just as I was sort of looking around and thinking "Hmm, maybe I better go out and try and find some kind of work there was a competition in the times for a children's story now everybody in the world who isn't writer for children or a children's librarian or somebody who knows about it everybody out there thinks that because the child is small and because the words on the page are few and far between somehow it's easier and actually the precise opposite is true the fewer the words on the page the better they've got to be
1: i i wholeheartedly agree with that i have waded through some terrible books Mm. with my kids and um you 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 know you've got a a wonderful book when both of you want to read it again and again and again and it can bear up to doing that yes it has to to
2: have basically the force of poetry that you can return to it over and over Uh, and so the best you know it's much easier to write um you know the latest bestseller than it is to write where the wild things are or you know the gruffalo or any one of those kinds of books
1: absolutely so you, so you found this uh, So I
2: went in for the competition. I love competitions. I still love them. And I was quite sure uh, that I was going to win. I'm always sure I'm going to win. I didn't win. <laughs> um, I didn't even get a runners-up or anything. I just didn't win. But, crucially, I'd written a story. And I had such fun doing that. You know, I was lying on a sofa, I had my knees bent up, I was writing on my knees, it was fabulous. I thought, gosh, this is a lot easier than teaching, maybe I'll see if I can, you know, because I was reading tiny weeny stories, and I also thought, well, maybe I could write one of these very short texts. So I wrote a couple, they weren't very short, but they were quite short, and I sent, this is long ago, I mean, this is sort of 50 years ago, Um in the days when you had to type them out, put them in an envelope, add return postage for them to send it because back. Because
1: there was only one copy. Presumably. That's right. Well, yeah. yes. Or, you know, if
2: you were lucky, your husband at the university would copy it for you. But basically, yes, one copy. And I sent it out to various publishers. And I knew about who was publishing these things because I was reading all the books uh, to my child. And they came straight back. And this went on for about a year and a half. And you would think that after about, I don't know, 20, 25, I, I never counted, but a lot of rejections. That
1: is a lot. That's It
2: is a lot. You would have thought that the the idea, mm, maybe these stories aren't frightfully good, might have occurred to me. But no, no, I was quite convinced that these stories were terrific. Therefore, There was only one reason why they weren't being accepted, and that was because I worked out the people down in London were so busy that they just, you know, they didn't have the the sort of leisure to imagine how beautiful these would be um, if they had pictures. Mm -hmm. So I thought, right, I've got to get illustrations. So I went to the library and talked to them there and said, you know, where do you find an illustrator? And they sent me, lovely librarians sent me to what is now Manchester Metropolitan University. Used to be the Polly, Manchester Polly, where I was introduced to Tony Ross.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yes. Wow. In those days, you yeah. see, he
2: wasn't a famous illustrator. He was teaching uh, students graphic design and graphic art and illustration. can
1: found Tony Ross.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. He's illustrated a few of my books. Um, and he introduced me to a student of his called Doreen Caldwell, and together we went to London with some pictures. And I thought this was it. I thought, right, this is it, we'll walk in, they'll reach into their bottom drawer, they'll take out a contract, we'll sign the contract, and we'll go back to Manchester rich and famous. That was my scenario. Nobody wanted to know. Everybody said no. We went to about, I don't know, five or six places. And when we went to the last one, Hamish Hamilton, I was while we were waiting for somebody to come down and say no, like all the others had done, I noticed that they had up little books like I'd never seen before, which are called, in America they're called chapter books, so they're books for kids who have just begun to read. And so they need big print and they need pictures on every page. And yeah. they're very sort of child-friendly, but they're longer. They're about 2,000 words long. And so when the person <laughs> came down to say no, which she did indeed say, I said, do you have to be famous t- to write one of these, or can anybody have a go? She said, no, anybody can have a go, and in fact, they're much easier to get published than what you guys are trying to do with a picture book, because picture books are the hardest thing in the world. They represent, I didn't think of this, but they represent an enormous sort of outlay of capital, you know, colour. Nobody will take on a picture book unless they can get co-production. All of that. That didn't occur to me. So, basically, I went back to Manchester and I took some of these, they were called gazelle books, um, out of the library and read them and wrote one and sent it in. And not only did they accept it, but they said that Doreen could illustrate it, which which was very nice. And a very strange thing happens to publishers once they give you a contract. Instead of saying "No, no, go away, never darken our towels again, they say, "Ooh, you might be the goose that lays the golden egg. You're right at the beginning of your career. You might turn out to be the next roll doll, I think it yeah. was in those days. Yeah. Now J.K. Rowling. So they're constantly, they change from saying, no, go away, to saying, where's your next homework? You know, when can we see the next piece of work?
1: Suddenly you're inside the door.
2: Exactly, yeah. exactly. And they want stuff from you. Well, I have not turned out to be the next roll doll However, you know, people are still asking me to do stuff. So yeah. uh, they live in hope and so do I, you know. Uh, but you have to be... So after that, the, the story that I wrote for the competition, which didn't win... Became the basis of my first, sort of slightly bigger book, which was a collection of short stories called Apricots at Midnight, which was based around a patchwork quilt. So every patch in the quilt had a different short story about yeah. the woman who'd made it when she oh, right. was, yeah. Um, so that was how I got started, and then I did all kinds of stuff. You know, I went from one kind of book to the other, and as you say, once you're in. People will suggest stuff to you, yeah. uh, and and give do you want to things try doing to. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah,
1: I love I love this idea of you just absolutely having that total faith that you were going to be a writer. And I'm just, you know, I think that's quite a sustaining thought. Um, and and there is that bit that you see in writers that, regardless how many doors have been shut to them, they do yes. have that feeling. That you
2: do have to develop a a hide like a rhinoceros. And B, you have, to, you have to exercise, as it were, your own critical judgment, I think. I mean, obviously, one's biased towards one's own work. You know, it's like having children. You know that, you know, your child is not the prettiest, the cleverest, you know, the one who'll jump highest. But you wouldn't swap her for any other child. You know yeah. if somebody offered you a better model you'd say no yeah. no, this, this, is, this is my child this yeah. is my so that's that's how I feel about my work I mean I know that they're not the best books judged objectively because I'm not a fool but they're the ones I like best yeah and you have to keep that sort of love going because if you don't have that certainly nobody else is going to uh, or you know, they might, but it's, it's, a, it's a chance. And so you've, you've got to sort of keep believing that somewhere out there, someone will like it. If, if of course, they don't, which also happens to a lot of people, uh, I guess you've got two choices. You either give up and do something entirely different, just say, right, you know, this is not for me, can't take the disappointment, or you change tack Uh, you try something else you explore other avenues you enter more competitions you know you try a bit of this and a bit of that you go on course you know you you try and keep the flame alive somehow but I was lucky I mean I, I got taken on as a children's writer and everything has as it were flowed from that.
1: So one of the things I really I'm really interested in exploring with you is is it's just this idea of this amazing career that's developed and gone from one one form to another and um so obviously you started off writing chapter books or your first publication was chapter book for relatively young children yes um but you've written for younger yes i would
2: say that before i turned to adult books in 2000 my first adult book came out in 2003 so between 76 and 2003 i was writing all sorts of things i was writing what are now called middle grade books a couple of them illustrated by tony ross as well which was very nice Uh, there was a series about some cats who lived around a square and that was called the cats of cuckoo square there were four little books in that series there was a book about a magic, uh, my only excursion into fantasy, because I'm not a big fantasy person, but I wrote two books about the Fantora family, who all had magical powers, and yep. both books were narrated by the cat.
1: You did something similar with the, the Happily Ever After. Oh, yes. As
2: well. Yes, that, that, was, that was very good fun. This, this all comes down to my daughter Sophie, Sophie Hannah. One year, we went on holiday... And she brought along a book of the kind that she used to call when she was a teenager. I don't know, I haven't heard the phrase from her for a few years, so she may have stopped. She used to call them Fat Shinies. And Fat Shinies were airport books, you know, right. like Lace by Shirley Conran yeah. and, you know, big fat shiny books. And we were sitting by the pool, and she said to me, she must have been about 14, Why don't you write a Fat Shiny? So it sort of lodged in my head and then I thought to myself you know fat shinies are always about Hollywood rich advertising types people with designer clothes and I thought to myself well you know if I wrote a fat shiny who do I know I don't know these people I know teachers and librarians basically (laughs) uh, and academics and so I thought teachers Nobody could write a fat shiny about teachers. And I can remember it absolutely vividly. I was standing at the sink washing up. I didn't have a dishwasher. I was washing up. And I was thinking, well, if you did set it at a school, maybe if you didn't, if you didn't um, concentrate on the teachers but concentrated on the girls... Maybe that would be more interesting because I left school when I was over 18. So, you know, these are quite grown up girls. Mm. I thought maybe if you concentrated on the girls, it would be more fun. And I thought, right, OK, fat Chinese have one characteristic. They have three heroines. You know, there's a nymphomaniac. There's a there's a psychopath, you know, they, yeah. they have three different. Types. Yeah. I thought, OK, so we'll have three girls. And I thought, well, the first girl can be. And these words must have been in my head. I must have thought, a scholar in her ivory tower. I imagined a very studious type. And into my head, at once, came the image, a very famous image, I think by David Hockney, of Rapunzel leaning out of a very long sort of lighthouse-looking tower. And she's leaning out, and her plait goes all the way down the tower. And as soon as I saw that, really like a light bulb, Went up in my head, and I thought, blimey, that's what I can do. I can have fairy tales set at Rodine, basically. And that's what I did, and I love doing that. I love doing that because there I had the entire background, you know, I knew everything absolutely backwards, no research needed, and I just had to sort of transpose the fairy tales.
1: You had your backdrop. Yes, yes, go.
2: and and that made all the difference. And when it came out, it was quite funny. I got a le- it came out as three books, and now it's a it's a trilogy, bound up as yeah uh, happy ever after. It's called. But when it came out, it came out as the tower room, watching the roses and pictures of the night. And after the tower room, I got a letter, came to my publisher from somebody at Rodine saying this sounds very like our school (laughs) were you here by any chance and i said yeah yeah i was uh i changed it you know i put it in the middle of a wood instead of on a cliff and that kind of thing but everything in it is 100 percent true apart from the story yeah absolutely
1: yeah so i i really want to ask you about um that the idea that your your writing seems to have developed alongside your children growing up, so that you've written for older, you know, you've written for older children as they've got older, and then as they have become adults, you've written for adults. But we have got loads of time, and I really want to find out about your new book. But do you think that's true? Do you think that did it's happen? it's
2: probably sort of true, yeah. uh, and it's true that I have kept writing uh, as I sort of became an adult writer. I did keep up with the children's books as well, yeah. as long as people wanted them. Uh, people sort of stopped wanting them after a bit. Uh, and it didn't matter, because by then I was already an adult writer. Yeah. And and yes, I'm I, I'm pretty sure that maybe having no children or not going into school so much might have had... Uh, an influence but if somebody asked me if somebody commissioned something I, I would certainly do it but what happened with the adult books was very very funny we got uh, three of us me and Annie Dalton who is a children's writer and Vivian French I think Some, three of us got an email from the daughter of one of us Annie Dalton's daughter who was working at I think Random House might be wrong century century and she sent us all an email and she said look ladies we are fed up in the office of you know am i going to meet mr Wright type novels this was sort of the height of lit, just before 2000 and little cartoon pictures of girls with skinny legs and high and heels likes. and champagne glasses we're sick of that she says what we want she says is big sweeping novels for big sweeping women i mean that kind of thing and the, the one she mentioned was um, Colleen McCulloch, uh, whose name escapes me. What is it called? The one with the priest. Very famous. Not Thornbirds. Yes, yes, that's the one. The Thornbirds, exactly. And I don't often get a good idea, but I got a good idea. I thought, right. You're washing up again. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't as it happened. What I was doing was trying to write Ithaca. And it's, always, it's a bit like knitting. You know, when you're knitting a jumper, you're always keen on the next pattern that you might knit when you finish this jumper. And if you're writing a book, you're always thinking, oh, the next book will be fun. This is hard work. (laughs) The next book will be great. And I got this brilliant idea. And I just wrote it out in a paragraph and sent it straight back to her and said, what do you reckon to this? And she says, yes, that sounds exactly what we want, but you'll have to write a bit. So I thought, right, OK, I'll write a bit. Wrote about I don't know, 20, 30 pages, and sent it off to her. And she wrote back and said, yes, we like this. She said, but we really can't give you a contract on the basis of of 20 pages. You're going to have to write, you know, quite a bit more before we commit. So at this point, I'm beginning to feel a bit guilty because it is taking time away from my actual paid work. That's right. And so what I did was I got in touch with my editor lovely man called david fickling also philip pullman's editor and said what about this david you know can i can i take a bit of time off to do this and he said yeah sure no hurry no rush it's fine so i wrote started writing and while i was writing sophie was in my house when her agent rang up one day she happened to take a call from her agent in my kitchen. So the agent who knew me asked after me, how's your mum? And Sophie said, oh, she's writing an adult book. To which the agent says, oh, she said, I'd love to see that. Uh, great. So I thought, right, fantastic. And then I thought, no, hang on. I've got an agent, a lovely agent for my children's books. I felt a bit disloyal. So after Sophie had gone, I rang my agent and said, look, You know, there's a London agent for this adult book. She'd been kept au courant. Uh, What do you think? And Laura said, yes, send it to her. Absolutely send it to her. Right. So I did. And to give her credit, she's not my agent now. She was my agent then. To give her credit, she sold it for really way too much money. I mean, I said so at the time. But, you know, she was a really sort of thrusting agent and on the basis of you know that 85 pages I think I sold it to Orion and I knew that I would never cover the advance I mean I did tell them but they wouldn't listen so what happens with that is as soon as your book comes out and doesn't cover its advance you're immediately perceived as failing even though you've sold thousands of copies Not enough, right? Um, So my editor was very supportive, but I felt as if I'd sort of fallen at the first hurdle, although it wasn't really my fault. Never mind. I had two lovely books, and then I had two more lovely books at a lesser advance, obviously. And then my uh, editor left, and my confidence by this time after four books... Pretty well, as low as it had been, mm. uh, because I'd enjoyed writing the adult books and I'd enjoyed all the fuss and the money and the yeah. nice things. And I thought, oh God, well this is this is not going to work. So in the middle of this, two thousand and nine—no, that's a bit later. I must have been doing other stuff. I did. I wrote, you know, various children's books, but my confidence for adult books was really, really low. My lovely editor at Orion had gone somewhere else. And my agent wasn't banging on my door saying, you know, what are you doing next? So I felt in a a kind of lull. Mm. And from that, I only really emerged in 2010 when we moved down here. But what happened in the interim was, I think it was 2009, and this takes us to sort of where I am now yeah. when we came down to Cambridge I wrote a book uh, at, my agent knew about it and she was quite pleased about it and she said let's try and see if we can sell it to the old editor in her new place and I said oh that will be fine please do that, that will be lovely and she did, she sold it and she sold it in a, in a two book deal while all this was going on, this is a long story. I'm sorry. Do interrupt if you I think. It, no, I
1: think it's so interesting to to hear, because I think people would assume about you that you're, you know, you've got a hundred books. You know, it's all been glory and roses and champagne. And I think to just hear that, you know, you how oh, no, how yeah. you motivate yourself absolutely, and, and also how you how you um, involve other people in helping to kind of frame other people other
2: people are absolutely crucial yeah because what happened was when I moved to Cambridge I was writing cover your eyes for Quercus that was fine but my husband was ill I took a year off from all kinds of works to move we had a lovely time, you know, culling the house in Manchester, moving to Cambridge. It was ace. We really enjoyed that. So I didn't write at all for a whole year. And then st- gradually started to write, you know, various other things. I had a picture book come out, bits and bobs of this and that. But I had this adult novel that I was contracted to write and I wrote it. And that came out, I think, in 20... can't remember. But my husband was ill and so that of course took a lot of energy. Mm. I'm very lazy at the best of times. I'm not a hard worker at the best of times. So any distraction I just stop work and do other stuff.
1: (laughs) And also for a writer, I mean, you know, you put huge amounts of energy into a book and Once something like that happens to you, I think you don't necessarily have the same book to write that you had. No, exactly, exactly.
2: And, crucially, in 2009, I went to see an exhibition of quilts at the V&A. And I saw the Raja quilt. Now, the Raja quilt is a quilt that was made in 1841 on a ship travelling between London and Tasmania, by women convicts under the guidance of a young woman, 23, called Keziah Hayter,
1: Hater, who,
2: Hayter, <laughs> who was the cousin of George Hayter, the court painter who painted the very beautiful Queen Victoria Coronation portrait. And on the little caption, it's a very beautiful patchwork on its own, but on the little caption it said, This quilt was made by women convicts traveling, as I've told you. Keziah Hater, you know, when the ship landed in Tasmania, Keziah Hater was engaged to be married to the captain. And I looked at this and I thought, you could not make that up. No, that's amazing. I mean, that is astonishing. You're a romance writer, you know. If you'd put it in, your editor would have said, no way, that is ridiculous, right? But I, I looked at that and I thought, there's a book here. Yeah. There has got to be a book here. And forgot, not forgot all about it, but pushed it into another place in my head. But I, I was haunted by it. I thought, what an amazing thing. I mean, I'm mad about patchwork anyway as a sort of metaphor and as a piece of art. Was the first sort of... book was patchwork, wasn't That's it? right. Yeah. That's right. And I've written poems about patchworks, all sorts of things. So this was in the back of my mind. And... I wrote my first Mm. novel for Quercus, Cover Your Eyes, and I wrote the second novel. The second novel in that contract was supposed to be the Patchwork Quilt book. But my husband died in 2013, and I did not feel like research, Mm. historical stuff, any of that. So I said to my lovely editor, look, you know, the second book that I was going to write, please can I not write it? Can I do a fluffy romance instead? Mm. Much easier to write, which I did, and I wrote a book called *Love or Nearest Offer*, which is a very light-hearted, fun about an estate agent sort of yeah. matching up clients with houses—a really sort of jolly book.
1: So, so that that was kind of a healing process. Yes, I yes, that. it yeah. was. It
2: was comforting. It was yeah. nice, and that came out in twenty sixteen, and basically sank without trace I mean I had a very tiny advance so nobody was going to spend a lot on advertising but it basically sank without trace in the way that nobody at Quirkus wanted you know rang me up and said where's the next book we're looking for something else what are you doing next nothing so I thought to myself right and meanwhile on the, on the peripheries I've got both my daughters saying you need to find a proper agent you just need to she is yeah. not for you so it's it's like divorcing your husband you think oh god you know it's going to be awful they'll be so hurt and you've
1: invested a, so much time already yes,
2: <laughs> not a bit of it not a bit of it I sent my nice letter to her saying I'd like to part ways yeah. And by return, as if she was sitting by the computer and waiting for my message, by return came a letter saying, don't worry, it's true, we haven't been able to do so much for you, it's fine. And I thought, brilliant. So then very I had much. to you find to another agent. <laughs> <laughs> I told both my daughters that what I wanted to write was this quilt book.
1: Because I think you've got one daughter who's a writer and have you also got another daughter who's a publisher? In, who's a publisher. Yes,
2: okay. so, so I have, I have very top... Very good mentors, yeah. I have yeah. top...
1: Support, yeah. I have to say.
2: Both my daughters are brilliant um, and very, very good at how to... Very good, both of them, at how to navigate the publishing forest, basically. Yeah. So what I did was... I knew I wanted to write this book. I was prepared to work out what I wanted to say and to write a bit of it. I was not prepared at my age to spend two years or something writing on spec and then have it turned down. I'm yeah. too old and I'm not dedicated enough. I did a, I did an event with Sarah Vaughan who lives in Great Shelford with me uh, one Christmas and somebody in the audience I was telling this story to somebody in the audience said, what'll happen if you don't find an agent would you would you finish the book? And I said, no actually no if I can't interest an agent enough, to take me on then no I'm absolutely not I can do other lovely things
1: yeah I'm so interested in this because this this sort of the bit of you that wants to write you know is such a strong driver and it sounds like that's not the main thing I mean you've got you've had all of that stuff
2: exactly and you have to take into account here my age you know I'm 75 so I was 73 then but that's old you know lots of people have stopped work by then and crucially and this this is probably the most crucial thing i didn't need to right i had savings
1: but you did have the idea i had the idea that
2: i really really wanted but i would still not have
1: persisted with it because
2: i enjoy too many other things i am perfectly happy Spend my life watching box sets, reading novels, going to lunch with people. I'm perfectly happy doing that and never writing another word because I don't need to. But I did want to write this book, but I needed a good agent. So what I did was I talked around to various people and tried. I tried one agent who shall remain nameless. I mean, she was she was very nice to me, but I could see when I went to see her she sort of didn't get it you know she didn't offer useful suggestions so we, we parted ways
1: perfectly amicably. so it's again it's this sort of networking thing so you well I, I you applied I you.
2: applied anonymously not anonymously pseudonymously and I wrote to these agents saying I'm a published writer but I'm going under a pseudonym I'm approaching under a pseudonym because this is an entirely different thing I didn't want them to be able to look me up. Yeah. That's the crucial thing. Yeah. I didn't want them to see that my last two books did nothing. You know. Yeah. Um, so I went pseudonymously. And in the end, I wrote to Nell. Now, Nell Andrew of Peters, Fraser and Dunlop is somebody with whom I judged a Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize back in, I think, 2014 something like that and we never actually met although we spoke about our choices and everything on the phone a couple of times but she knows who adele Guerra is so i wrote to her and it was quite funny i wrote under my pseudonym and i sent her my proposal and she said oh i like the look of this brought me into london and i sat down on a little chair at the end of a corridor and she came opened her door and came down the corridor and she looked at me and she said, oh my God, it's you, (laughs) which was very funny. So anyway, she said, I really like this. She said, but you have to be prepared for the way I work. And she told me the way she works. She says, "I, I know exactly what people want. I know exactly how to get it. And I expect my writers basically to work very hard. I said that's fine I'm absolutely okay with that And I am I mean I'm used to From childhood Teachers helping me Telling me what to do Guiding me So I'm very happy uh, To take editorial Suggestions and input And so that was Oh about 18 months ago And I rewrote the book I finished the book Nell was going off on maternity leave I finished it just after she'd had her baby, sort of a few months after she'd had her baby. And she edited it, and then I wrote it again. I mean, we went backwards and forwards a good few times. And I was was happy to do it because I knew that she believed in the story, and she had good ideas, changed the direction of it entirely, and turned it into... (sighs) I wouldn't exactly call it a crime story, but certainly a mystery, which I had just never envisaged.
1: So in your head, I, I mean, I would be the same. I would see that story that you told me as, as a, rom- a romance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But no,
2: first thing she said to me was, this character's got to die. I said, what? <laughs> really? Seriously? You know, she knew exactly. And she added a sort of element of mystery to it. Who killed her? We've got to find out. People are in danger, jeopardy, all of this, which, again, I was I was very happy to do. So that took about 18 months or so. And in January, this last January, so like four months ago, she sent it out and it was bought in a two book deal by Michael Joseph, which I was really, really thrilled about. Yeah, because you don't expect I didn't expect. Such an easy passage, really, and yeah. such immediate support. And Michael Joseph are thrilled and, you know, they're very excited about yeah. it. And so suddenly, at the age of 75, I've got a sort of, you know, a, a, re, a resurrection, I suppose, as as another character, as another yeah. n- name. Now, yeah. nobody's going to be hiding the fact that I'm me. I mean, I'm not going to skulk about and enough people. Know my face and have seen me, and I'm on Twitter, and goodness knows what. I can't hide uh, and be a recluse, which I wouldn't want to. Um, so I will be, you know, Adele Geras writing as, you know, somehow or other people will have know. Have you got
1: your name? Have you chosen your new name? I have.
2: <laughs> I'm not altogether sure I ought to mention okay. it here, but I, I will have a pseudonym, which will be public, I think, in, I think my editor said in August. So uh, I will let you know. If you've got a what
1: title? J- how are we going to? if somebody's listening to this and they're desperate to read it? Is it going to be on your website or? Uh, you I
2: well, it'll be on my website as soon as it's official. Yeah. Uh, I've got a title for it. It's called Conviction. Conviction. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and oh, maybe I will tell you my name because it. The reason I think I can tell you my name is because. My pseudonym has already got an event, is already doing an event in <laughs> August, and it's up on their website. Okay. Do you know, Have you heard of Swanwick?
1: Do yeah. you know about
2: Swanwick, where writers, would-be T- writers tell
1: me, Tell me about it.
2: So Swanwick is a, is, a, I think, a place in Derbyshire, if I'm not mistaken, and they have a course every summer where people can go and have seminars and talks and this and that. And so I'm appearing in Swanwick uh, in August. Uh, under my name which is blast of trumpets hope adams
1: hope adams yes like that. which is a good name it I sounds think. like from that era as well almost. yes it, it could it be, could be.
2: It? it could be it's plain yeah. it's short nobody asks you how to spell it or say it you and know I which i had a prob- being I li-
1: part of this kind well of journey that's, that's why that i call- yeah that's right. why
2: i called it hope it's very, very, uh, what's the word, cynical, I suppose. I called it Hope because I was well, I think hoping. it's quite romantic. <laughs> and Adams, to be at the top of the alphabet. Very simple, yeah.
1: Very. So you always go for But it's you a can. nice, uh, a so you've nice got name. you've upgraded from G. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Up, well, I,
2: I actually got, I'm married. I, I tell kids when I used to go into schools, I said when I met him, my name was Weston. And when I met a man called G, I married him at once in order <laughs> to move up the alphabet. Excellent, But yeah, so I'm excited about that So now I'm at the stage of editing again Because both my American editor and my UK editor Have put their heads together And sent me a document with their edits So they're working together Uh, Well I decided, yes Because the American, just by coincidence The American publisher is also a penguin Under the umbrella of penguin it means that the two of them can consult together yeah. about what they want in the end. Yeah. Rather than doing what happened, for example, with Troy, which was David Fickling edited it here, and when it was sold to America I had a whole new lot of, of queries and yeah. editing coming from the American side. So it's very nice to be yeah. able to do the two, you know, the two together.
1: Yeah. Um so you've got had this I mean, it feels to me a really inspiring journey, and and I'm just kind of got this idea of you when you first got published with that amazing self belief that you described, and has 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 a bit of that kept you going, or yes. you had days when you felt that wasn't there anymore. No, no, uh,
2: I had, as I say, I had quite a long period of sort of slumpishness uh, around about two thousand and seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. till I came to Cambridge and sort of regrouped, but a i'm i'm very optimistic by nature i find it very very hard to stay low Um, i get that from my father my father used to say if he gets unhappy he becomes ill and he did i mean he's sort of allergic to unhappiness Mm. Um, so there's that i have a sort of positive mindset as it were by birth but i have also had a lot of encouragement Uh, Sophie is brilliant Uh, my other daughter too but Sophie is particularly good at motivating I mean she thought of the name love or nearest offer she discussed plots with me endlessly she told me no no you know try this try that it'll be fine you've got to do more of you know she's very good at at bringing people to work if you know what I mean. Encouraging, that's the word I'm looking well, for. Like she's she's like, very encouraging. I'm
1: imagining that perhaps to start off with, you were a mentor for her and that she's sort of almost... Well, do you know,
2: I, I'm not sure I ever was. Um, She always knew exactly, you know, what she wanted. I can't recollect ever having really... I'm useless. I mean, she will give me her book, you know, once she's written it. Back in the old days, especially, say, read this, tell me what you think, any criticism... And I'm just, I'm so uncritical. I just read it and say, oh, it's wonderful, <laughs> it's fabulous, I love it. You know, I haven't got any kind of constructive things to say. Um, whereas she is very, very practical and knows, knows very well how to, I think she'll be, she'll be very good as a, as, a, as, a, as a, she's a very good teacher. She, she's a brilliant editor. She always knows how to, and my other daughter too very good at sort of sorting out where things should go you should have this person doing that there rather than there you know all the sort so of practical the things and yeah and Sophie of course is brilliant at plot and I'm useless so she often helps me uh, with with the plots and it yeah. sounds
1: like this plot is quite different um because obviously when you're writing a romance um the ending is written in yes that, you know what's going to happen yes. and you're prepared I mean, one of the things that attracts me to romance is you're prepared to see your characters go through quite a bit of unhappiness yes. in order yes. to reach that end. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, if, how how has that changed for you in writing slightly different?
2: Well, kind of I, I also knew that it ended happily. I mean, that yeah, that was what attracted the, the, me to the, it. And in fact, on one the of good, the comment. things I think that my editors now are going to do is emphasize more if I I can possibly do it along the way during those 15 weeks slightly more you know ups and downs in the relationships where it might not have come off so so to give people who like the romance rather than the mystery to give people who like the romance a sort of thread of will they won't they can they can't they and all of that yeah so that'll that'll be fun
1: yeah I've got to ask you some quick fire questions and I want to keep on talking to you but I think we're <laughs> we're going to um run out of run out of time. Um I'm really excited to see that new book.
2: Um, I will send you a copy.
1: Oh, thank you, <laughs> yes, I will. So so I think we're going to th- these questions are sort of thinking about your process as a writer. So right. um I'm going to fire them at you quite quickly, but um, you you can take as long as you like to answer. Um, Where do you write?
2: I write in my study, which is a tiny little room facing out to Cambridge Road. Um, Just a tiny little room lined with books, little table, radio on the front of the table computer, radio at the back of the table computer at the front. And I generally write there.
1: And do you write anything by hand?
2: Not anymore very much, although I keep buying the pens and the notebooks, you know, they pile up, but mainly no, no.
1: Tea or coffee or something stronger when you're writing? Coffee. Coffee, ah. Um, people are quite sophisticated in coffee now, is it a strong coffee, is it?
2: No, it's a, it's a what are they called, carte noire, Nescafé type
1: okay. coffee, yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a blast of espresso. Oh, no, no, I
2: haven't got, I haven't got yeah. machines. I, get, I, I do sometimes have a cafeteria if I'm feeling, you know, particularly. But no, as I'm working, I generally have just cups of coffee.
1: Now, are you a planner or a pantster?
2: Oh, planner.
1: Right.
2: 100-page plan. 100-page. Oh, no, no. But 40-page, you know, I, I, I learnt to my cost. You really, uh, particularly with a mystery kind of book, you need to plan very, very... Ca- I do not understand pantsers at all. Uh, I've always planned a bit, so I've always written like a page of a plan. But when I wrote my first adult book, it was sold on the basis of 80 pages and a synopsis of the rest. So I had to do it in order to sell the book. And yep. that was brilliant, because afterwards when I came to write it, it's like following a recipe book. You know, all oh, right, okay. This is the scene where Beth and Mary have a row about John. Easy. Uh really, really makes life much easier to have a good plan.
1: Um, morning, afternoon, or evening writer?
2: <laughs> Should be morning, but generally afternoon, because by the time I've got up, read the paper, done the crossword, delayed things, answered emails, it's generally about two o'clock or something like that sort of two to five usually and every time i do write in the morning which i sometimes do i i'm amazed every time i write from nine to twelve let's say because you never want to do more than about three hours so i write from nine to twelve and i think gosh i could do this every day and be finished by lunchtime but somehow never works out like that i never work in the evenings anymore used to when i was younger
1: yeah I think that's something that happens when you've got kids isn't yeah it? you've, you've yeah. got no choice um music, radio or silence when you're radio
2: talk radio, burbling voices yep
1: uh and do you have a daily word count when you're writing no, no
2: no no uh I figure anything over anything over a thousand I reckon is good going um you know a thousand five hundred is very good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, that's,
2: I, I, <laughs> that's, yeah a that's a good it is a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um does anyone else I suspect I know the answer to this, does anyone else read your work before you send it to your agent?
2: I think the only person who reads it and who reads it sort of along the way in bits is is probably Sophie. Yeah.
1: Well my guess was right. Yeah. Um which author has been the biggest influence on your writing?
2: Oh my goodness me. <sighs> Probably. <laughs> it's a silly thing to say because, you know, you, you're a sort of mulch of all the things that you read when you were young. When people ask me what my favourite book is, I always say Jane Eyre uh, because that just finished me off uh, and you will understand why. Absolutely. But I was also knocked sideways by things like uh, Little Women when I was young, Ballet Shoes, Swish of the Curtain, Gorman Gust. You know, I mean, I read an awful lot the one thing I can actually identify where somebody influenced me was early Faye Weldon. The very, very early novels of Faye Weldon in the 70s were written in first person, present tense, very short paragraphs. And at that time I was busy with childcare and stuff and I thought, gosh, you can write a book like that in little bits and sort of string them all together. So that that was very, uh, very impressive, uh, made a great impression on me. But I don't know. I don't know who's influenced me. When my first book, my first novel came out, I've always treasured this. Um, my first full-length novel was a book called The Girls in the Velvet Frame. And a review said that it reminded her of Jane Gardham, which oh, I've ooh. always you know, treasured uh, as a remark. I'd love to be uh, reminded have someone think i'm like jane Gardam. that would be good
1: um well i think we've talked about this but do you believe in writer's block and what do you do if it strikes
2: (sighs) i do believe in writer's block in the sense that you know sometimes it's very hard to sort of think where to go next i sometimes ignore it and put on another box set but usually guilt will drive you to the table and then you have to just grit your teeth and and settle down and do it but i think you can get i think an awful lot of writer's block is not knowing what you're going to say next and that's why i'm such an advocate of planning because frankly if you've planned it you know here's the scene where, you know, Mrs. Jones shouts at her daughter for having too much makeup and too short skirts. Don't feel like writing that today. It's okay. Tomorrow it'll be the same yeah. thing. So you know where you are. I think it's the terror of thinking, blimey, you know, what's going to happen in this story next that drives people away from the desk? And I think if more people planned, there would be less writers' block. They wouldn't have that chasm. Yeah, Exactly.
1: This is the last one: cat or dog? Oh, cat! Cat!
2: Cat! Cat! Cat!
1: <laughs> Sophie, Sophie said dog, and that her dog would be should be the prime minister.
2: Oh, Sophie says a lot of very strange <laughs> things. She's my daughter, but she says a lot of very strange things. Brewster is delightful; he is my grand dog, but I now have a grand cat. Uh, my Jenny's got Jenny's got a cat called Magwitch. So, uh,
1: oh, yes, I,
2: I much prefer cats because I think because. When I was a little girl, I was terrified of dogs I mean seriously terrified I would have to cross over to the other side of the road and it's only growing up that I've you know I've met lots of dogs that I like and they're nice and so forth but I think there is a, a sort of deep rooted fear that there's just something about a dog that might bite you or yeah. something
1: yeah yeah. And they'd so, be out of your control, whereas yes, a cat. Whereas a cat, yeah. can negotiate. You could, yeah. Or no, cats. Away.
2: Th- what I really love about cats is there's no situation in which they aren't completely beautiful and do precisely what they want without ever offending you, you know? They just do their thing and yeah. look beautiful. Yeah. And that's marvelous. I wish I wish I could be a person like that who just was completely selfish in the most beautiful possible way it would be brilliant something to aspire to. Yeah.
1: <laughs> adele thank you so much
2: thank you it was lovely
0: thanks to both lucy shearman and adele geras for that fascinating podcast you can follow them both on twitter and do come and hear adele talking with her daughter crime writer sophie hannah at the university of cambridge's institute of continuing education short story festival at maddingley hall on the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd of June, 2019. You can find out more on the website, www.ice.cam.ac.uk forward slash event, forward slash Cambridge, hyphen short, hyphen story, hyphen festival, hyphen 2019. So on behalf of Lucy and Adele and everyone at the Institute of Continuing Education, we wish you the very best of reading in every genre.